The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast, and I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm back with my co-host, The Terrible Twosome. I'm with Daniel. How are you doing, sir? Doing all right. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm with Paul. How are you doing, sir? Hi. Your mic is much better this week. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I got my truck back, so I got my regular microphone. Awesome. It's cobbled together with electrical tape, but it works. Right on. And we're back. We're going to be uh, going into the second part of our uh, slasher uh, movie series for August. Uh, we're going to get to two movies here very, very soon. But we're going to take care of some uh, housekeeping and some business here first. I think we'll just jump right into the one comment we got last week. And my God, it's a fucking doozy. It's from uh, Greg Bylog there, Paul. Say Greg. It's got to be yeah. Greg. He said. Didn't get a chance to post last week, so here's a small essay of my random thoughts on both films to make up for my bad behavior. Uh, he said, you guys are right. Prowler is technically better in just about every way. Story, effects, acting, etc. are all better, yet for some reason I enjoyed Madman more. He said, I suppose the fourth setting is more interesting to me than the more urban setting in The Prowler. It also helped that the movie was based on an urban legend, which is, always seems to be more scarier. He said he also likes The Killer quite a bit more. And I really enjoyed how they actually showed him quite a bit in the early parts of the film, whereas most slashers, uh, not including the sequels, tend to keep the killer hidden until towards the end. He says, the way they started out with a campfire story and a very catchy song was really creative. It reminds me of Friday the 13th Part 2, which came out almost a year earlier, and to a lesser extent, the opening of Friday the 13th Part 7. Uh, it also certainly interesting how they gave you a preview of the kills that hadn't yet happened. I still think the scene where they're leaving the campfire and Mad Mad Mars is watching them from the tree has to be one of the creepiest scenes in any movie ever. I gotta yeah, agree with that. I, I agree. Yeah, I love the. I mentioned that too. That I love him in the tree line. I do love. Yeah, that yeah. He says, one criticism I have is the film's misuse of Galen Ross. In Dawn of the Dead, she was one of the genre's all-time strongest female characters. In this, she's basically a typical screaming last girl, and while the quick boob shot is appreciated, I can't help but think her acting talents could have been put to better use. Also, is it just me, or does she look quite a bit younger than she did in Dawn of the Dead, which came out four years earlier? Yeah, she looks a lot less stressed. I, I, I mean, they might have done that on purpose in Dawn of the Dead to make her look very stressed out and whatnot. I mean, she's chain-smoking the whole, the whole damn time and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, maybe, a, maybe a, a deliberate or accidental misuse of, uh, of characters' uh, potential. Yeah. Uh, she said, he says, when I was young, we often did go to the drive-in that was surrounded by forest. I can imagine seeing this as a young kid in that setting. Shit, I wouldn't have slept for weeks. As for The Prowler, the thing that impressed me the most was the special effects. I didn't realize they were done by Tom Savini until after I watched it. Really great stuff, especially the early bedroom and bathroom kills. Otherwise, it was a technically sound movie that just didn't keep my interest nearly as much as it should have. It reminded me of My Bloody Valentine, which, 
from my memory at least, is the stronger movie in his own opinion. I didn't like how the story seemed to have all sorts of red herrings and random characters, almost as if the movie script was supposed to be a lot more complicated, and then they ran out of money halfway through filming. Uh, the nudity in both films was certainly nice, but not among the best in the genre. And finally, I'm happy to hear you'll be covering The Burning. I saw this fairly recently for the first time, and is really... A lost gem. I can't believe that I lo- overlooked it for so long. And he says, "Cheers, guys." Yeah, that that. I mean, that's that's the same kind of aspect you go on most of these films that we've been covering. Uh, when you when you when you finally find these films, you're like, "Where were you in my whole life?" So I mean, that's definitely they're they're all films to be appreciated in certain extents by people who love the genre. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts from you, Daniel, on anything you had to say? Uh, I was going to bring up the thing with uh, what's her name from Dawn of the Dead. Sorry, Caitlin Ross. Galen Ross, yes. I was going to uh, bring that up on our on the episode, and then just was thinking of other things, and it slipped my mind, so I didn't bring it up. But yeah, no, I agree that you know I, I follow along with that comment fairly well. I don't have any uh, issues with it one way or the other. But um, I, I am glad he brought up the uh, the fact that actress could have been better used versus the way she was actually used. So yeah, that's all yeah. I really got to say to that. <laughs> you know, it's true. Like I think I think I mentioned that like I think she was still like noticeably the best actress in that film. It's just that she had nothing to work with. Like, they really didn't give her anything. That was the best. Oh, that's basically was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we got we got through that. Uh, thank you very much, Greg, for that comment. Very well thought out, and we always appreciate anything you have to say. Uh, anyone else who wants to send us comments, of course, you can uh, send put comments under this if you're watching it on the YouTube, uh, or you can send an email to me. Reviews at gmail.com. That's H-O-U-G-L-Y reviews at, e- at gmail.com. Or you can go to our Podbean site, tmddos.podbean.com, and leave comments under the actual uh, posts. And we'll read every comment and respond to every comment. So. Half lit, didn't watch <laughs> the movies, let's do a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyone has any uh, movies they want to mention first that they might have watched this week, and then we can get right on to the reviews? Nothing from me. Nothing from you. you. Daniel? I have one. I uh, bought and watched The World's End, or rewatched ah. The World's End. Ah. That means I like it. Ah. <laughs> Uh, great film. I think we are going to discuss this on the podcast at some point in the not-too-distant future, so mm-hmm. I won't uh, go too far, but uh, very potent metaphor for alcoholism and uh, just an overall brilliant film. So I didn't uh, get that. I don't know what I understand. <laughs> Watch it sober. Old, and all I got is the old crumbs chick is, is so cute. I just want to marry her right now. P.S. <laughs> if my wife's watching, I didn't say that. <laughs> But yeah, my that's a brilliant would, film. Brilliant film. My my wife would probably share her with me if that was an option. So you know, there's always that. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Chris. <laughs> I just thought of Danger Mouse the whole time is because Penfield from Danger Mouse used to say "Oh, crumbs," but I don't know uh, if you ever watched Danger Mouse. No, never did. Not not since I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, the only thing I saw was a movie from the '70s called uh, "Prophecy," which is like an echo horror. The, uh, the, are you talking about the uh, uh, mutated bears? Yeah, the mutant bear. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love that film. Um, so shit. It, it, it's it's a it's a film with a lot of with a lot of big ideas and a lot of sort of really preachy uh, eco eco friendly kind of stuff and anti racism stuff. But it all sort of just takes a fucking nosedive by the second half of the film where you just all of a sudden see this big mutant bear costume which. Depending on which scene it's in, sometimes it looks really great, 
Yeah. Sometimes it looks like a guy in a rubber suit. And it's it looks a, like basically shit. a giant chemical burnt bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people back in the day. They were getting, they were getting. Um, I don't know. It wasn't really released at the same time, but they were getting the the film Grizzly confused with Prophecy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can see to, it. Yeah, the 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 Grizzly is an actual Grizzly, and then Prophecy is the mutated, severely burnt bear. Yeah, yeah. It, it's actually a lot of fun though. Like it, it just descends into this like geek show, fucking freaky, bloody mess. Uh, but it's a really entertaining one uh, at yeah. that. It, it's actually a pretty good film. Uh, I, I just revisited it from, I haven't seen it for like 20 years, and then I rewatched it on, I think, Put Locker, like, last week. And, yeah, I, I, I still like it a lot. Uh, it's it's one Stephen King, if you ever read his book, uh, Dance Macabre, he lists that as, like, one of his favorite films of that year, whenever it was, like, 79 or something like that. It's it's not a great film. Like, it's, it's a pretty cynical, nasty film in a lot of ways because, you know, it's showing, like, kids being brutally murdered and stuff by this mutant bear. And they're, they're again, sleeping bags. Yeah, but then again, Stephen King at that point was a cynical alcoholic, so, you know, he probably was enjoying it. It all blends together. Uh, I don't really have much on, on part of watching. I've just been HP Lovecrafting it lately with audiobooks, so I, I don't have a lot to go. I mean, same kind of concept. I mean, if you guys like horror and, mm -hmm. and, and craziness. Um, but I did do a little jint today to my local video store. I picked up Burying My Ex, which is a new film by Joe Dante. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, see I that. picked yeah. that up today for the wife to watch while I'm over here just screwing around. Maybe I hope it doesn't give her any kind of nuances or anything for my later <laughs> yeah. period. But uh, and I picked up some old films to, for me to to enjoy: Faceless, After Midnight, and I'm trying to remember the other one because I just picked it. Oh, New Year's Evil. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, apparently, I've rented all of them before, but I get so busy over the weekend. Is a lot of times I rent stuff, don't watch it, and take it back. Yeah, and just then rent it again. So. Just to support the local shop, yeah, yeah. As long as it's giving him money, I'm happy. Awesome. Without further ado, I think we can jump right into the reviews, and uh, I think we will start with... I think this is the first time Daniel's ever seen me with a beer in my hand. On, in this lot. is the first time I've ever seen you. Oh, <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> Cheers, go. Daniel. Yeah, and boy, is he horrified. We'll start with uh, Sleepaway Camp from 1983. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp for almost three weeks, and I'm getting very scared. Welcome to sleepaway camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba, Reba! Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Turn it! Turn the wheel! Oh my god! Sleep away, camp. You won't be coming home. Directed by Robert Hilsick, starring Felicia Rose, Jonathan Tiersten, Karen Fields, Christopher Collette, Mike Kellen, Catherine Kaimi, Paul D'Angelo, Thomas E. Vandell, Louis Salahane, John E. Dunn, Willie Cuskin, and Desiree Gold. 
Actually, uh, if you want, Paul, I'll let you uh, do the introduction to this film if you feel like it, if you feel up to it. Well, like I said, I haven't watched it in quite a while. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah. But th- that seems to be the nuance with me, is not watching the films, is just briefly going over what I remember. Um, <laughs> so I made a little, uh, just write down a little list of stuff that I remember. Of course, it's a, it's a, uh, a camp of, of kids, and they go on, in the beginning of the film, from what I remember, is they do a little uh, a flashback. They basically show the, the camp and the disarray that it's in right now, and Camp Arawak, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. is closed at the beginning of the film. And then they go to a flashback then from the present day of the camp being closed. The film starts off with a memory in memory of mom and a daughter. And I don't know who that actually references, whose mother actually passed away. I never actually knew that, but that's what the film is in memory of, a person's mother. Yeah. And then it flashes back to actually the the scene where the the family's actually enjoying enjoying the, the, the camp. The whatnot, etc. This is really hard to, for me to talk about because I'm trying to place all the scenes in my head. It's a uh, two men couple. Uh, this is very uh, racy for its time, which I I, I approve its raciness. And uh, and two kids playing in the in the uh, in in a lake. If I'm not if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, so no, you have to right. correct me on that one. Unfortunately, some other kids in in a ski boat are having a good time in the lake as well. Uh, of course, uh, the uh, a, a woman. A girl, I should say, is is a uh, is kind of taking uh, taking the attention away from the driver because she wants to give it a go as they pull a skier. It's a course of some jaunting, flirting, and stuff like that to get the uh, the control of the boat. I think she really wants to control to control some other joystick by the mannerism <laughs> she's giving. But uh, the the skier is is desperately realizing what's going on and screaming about there's a boat that they're heading to, and and they end up hitting the family which is a man, girl, and a boy, and uh, ends up her screaming innately about helping the family that just got hit, and they see one of the child's small life vests floating mangled in the in the ocean, or in the lake, I should say. Take it away, guys, <laughs> because that was the worst intro ever to a podcast. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. That's not nearly. I mean, that's like baseline, really. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I do have to, uh, before we get more into it, i got to ask, uh, Daniel, have, first off, have you ever seen this movie before? No, no, I hadn't. So. Okay, and had you ever heard of the twist ending? Like, did you go into this cold, or did you I, I went. I'll, I'll admit that I went in cold. Mm-hmm. I got about a third of the way in, and I thought there was going to be a twist ending, and I Googled it. So that because I watched it this morning, oh. and I knew I wasn't gonna have time to rewatch it to yeah. pick up stuff, so I did. Um, I did Google it. I did not guess the twist ending. That uh, I didn't guess the actual twist ending. Uh, I thought there was a very different twist ending that was going to happen. So I don't know if we want to spoil that for the listeners or not. Well, uh, um, anyone I don't think there's a way to discuss this film without just talking about the ending, really. Yeah, but. any anyone who doesn't want to be spoiled on a 30-year-old fucking movie with a twist ending, then you, they should just probably stop it right now, watch the movie, come back to the podcast, because we're going to fucking spoil it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, it, it it comes up to the present day at the time for uh, Camp Arawak or whatever, and essentially they sort of give you the idea that uh, one of the kids died, and and they make you think it, it was the boy who died, and girl ends up, you know, becoming adopted by her incredibly crazy incredibly fucking aunt. Crazy fucking aunt. Over over the top crazy. Like I I don't I don't even know what they're going for with those scenes. Like she the just, epitome of delusional. 
Let's just yeah. say that. Oh, yes, it is. Like yeah. that. <laughs> well, she's, she's pitched. I mean, the performance is pitched so towards camp, so towards this, this almost like John Waters movie kind of level mm-hmm. of, uh, of uh, that it, it starts to feel like parody very quickly, although it, it, it both is and isn't, I think. I don't know. It was, it's a very weird place to start the film when you're just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be thinking about this character at this point. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I was going to say, though, although it makes you understand how fucked up this character gets, if, if that was what they oh, had to deal with. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think they, they, at the right beginning of the film, you can kind of work it out if you try, but they don't really push it in your face that that's actually the, the way it is at the beginning of the mm-hmm. film. You know, there's a traumatizing incident, but then they play it pretty well at the beginning to hide it. Yeah. If you so, know what I mean, to hide the kind of spoof they have. Yeah. Yeah, um, so my biggest thing on the beginning of the film, after that goes on and the, they actually attend camp, I have it written down here. I wrote some notes down. Do we really need how to to know how to spell out Meg? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like, uh, essentially, uh, the, car- the, the the young girl's name is Angela. Uh, she comes to camp with her cousin Ricky, and Ricky is there to the look protection. out for her. She's, she's almost basically comatose. Like, she doesn't say anything to anybody. She's very, very quiet. And, of course, immediately that makes her a target to be picked on by everybody. So they're in the camp, and essentially they they start off with this sort of red herring thing where they kind of make you think that Ricky must be the guy who's going to be committing the murders because eventually some people start dying who have wronged Angela in some way. And essentially, everyone's picking on her, and he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. He just straight out says, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to beat your ass, shit like that. And we start out, uh, the first kill, well, it's actually it's not really a kill. The first attack, I guess we could put it, is with the head chef. And yeah, right. what, what what a fucking character. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what would, I have right who, down who, here. Who, who, who the fuck would hire this guy to camp? Like, how can you not tell this guy's a fucking pedophile? <laughs> I'll bet he works cheap, you know, because... Yeah. Uh, that 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 camp director was totally. Uh, he was just going by. I can make a ton of money off this camp, and that was his entire motivation for the entire mm-hmm. film. Really. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the it kind of goes together a little bit. You see, you actually get to see a little bit of Mel, and I have in parentheses worst camp owner ever. Yeah. And and according to that one is perv cook first incident long long screaming well deserved. Yeah. Because of much. how uh, much of a fucking perv he is because they try to make Angela feel better. They take him to the cook the the kitchen. Why don't you get her ice cream? Make her feel better. Make her feel at home. Get her used to this and we'll take her back and get some ice cream. And he's like basically I got an ice cream cone for you. Why don't you look at this thing and this and this? And then of course uh, the 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 cousin comes in to be like, what the hell's going on here? And then starts altercating the the perv cook. Yeah, there's no subtlety of this character. I mean, this guy's no. a straight up pedophile. Um, he jokes about it like when we first see the kids coming into the camp, he's just sort of staring at them, and he's like, "Ooh, yeah." And then the other black uh, cook, the uh, like, I guess like the second in command, the, the driving Miss Daisy character. Yeah, actually, who is believe it or not, uh, what's it, what's his name? Um, Darth Vader. Darth Vader's voice. James Earl Jones. Yeah, that's his dad. Oh no shit. Oh. Yeah, I that's interesting. That's that. cool. Yeah, he goes. They're they're too young for you, and he's like, no such thing. Where I come from, they call them baldies. Hmm. Like, <laughs> like come on. Like, every, every, everyone knows this guy's a pedophile. Everyone at the camp knows this guy's a fucking pedophile. And when he takes Angela into the uh, storage room or whatever, first thing he does is start taking his fucking belt off. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I got some ice cream cone for you here. Oh yeah. no, this isn't happening. So it is he, happening. yeah, so he he immediately succumbs to a very grisly fate with a big boiling pot of water that they were supposed to put corn in. What what did you guys think of those effects? I thought that was probably the best burn effects I've that ever was seen. Good. And if you look at those soft swelling and soft, very subtle, but yeah, they there, got is, they, there is got... bladders in there swelling yeah. softly. And it's yeah. not like, you know, in Howling, when they when they were doing the change bladders, it was a very visceral effect, and they were actually blowing up by accident and stuff like that because it was so much of a pressure. These were very soft and subtle swellings going on. It was yeah. pretty good. And as I did say, long, long screaming because the scene is, is very, very long. Yeah. For what for what the, the effect is, the scene is ex- extraordinarily long, yeah. And there is a very uh, tittering point of, you know, like, please let me go. You're like, get me down here, you fuck, I'll kick your ass and stuff like that. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And just these 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 hands coming in on the on the stool, kind of kind of interesting how you know just one hand would be enough to rattle the stool, you know, enough to make him fall. But it was a, it was a pretty good scene. Probably the biggest pot I've ever seen in my life, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What did you think of those that that uh, effects work for that, uh, Dan? I will say in general, I really liked the kills in this film. I like the fact that they're a little bit more expressionistic. Um, and there's one towards the end that I'm going to talk about specifically in that, where you, you kind of get hints of things rather than, like, directly shown, you know, mm-hmm. where you don't have to... You know, Savini's makeup effects, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, Savini's makeup, makeup effects are phenomenal, but it's also nice to see that some of these films are able to show things without going to that degree. Um, I think both styles are, are wonderful. I'm not complaining about one or the other. But I really like the effects here. I uh, I like the fact that we don't see his face at first. You see his hands. He's kind of like reaching up and grasping. And you mm-hmm. hear him scream. You hear him in, in agony. I mean, in, in a way that what happens to him is worse than killing him. Yeah. Uh, because it's, I mean, he's just going to have third degree burns, and it's going to be, you know, agonizing, agonizing. Yeah, that kind of. Especially thing. in in the in the early '80s, before, I mean, you know, medical technology was not then what it is now, even. So, you know, and then you finally get you kind of cut to his face. I I liked the restraint. I liked the fact that it was, you know, it, it was effective. You got what you needed to see, but it isn't shoving your face in it. It's making you wait for the effect. In, in a way, which I, I liked. Yeah. So the movie essentially progresses where it's, people start to die, and Mel starts to get the idea that maybe it's Ricky doing it because he's, you know, being very aggressive towards people who are going after Angela. Angela, of course, is very quiet. There's two girls, especially, who are really going after, which is Meg and Judy. Meg's one of the counselors. Judy's one of the fellow campers. They're both uber bitches. Like, <laughs> they're both they're they're both straight up. Oh like, yeah. yeah. The worst kind of fucking nasty human beings you can think the, of. Actually, the yeah, only written down the, here, smack a bitch. <laughs> the only character's name that I remembered in this movie was Judy, and that was because at one point she wears a T-shirt with the word Judy on it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember <laughs> because it was spelled out to me. I, I only remember because like, oh, it's on her chest, so you know, there we go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. She made, and they, and they do they do uh, they do make something of mentioning that she's like she apparently blossomed since the last year of camp where where she no longer wants to talk to Ricky she was apparently going steady with Ricky last year but now she's got tits so all the older guys are paying attention to her so she no longer wants anything to do with these young guys who are so immature and stupid right one thing about uh, a sleepaway camp that that you can definitely see more so than some of the other ones in the cult areas is there is actually a 
a, a good amount of young campers. I mean, it's it's one of those yeah. ones that actually has a full array of actual campers. They're not trying to pander to the twenties and make them look seem like they're teenagers. This is this film's actually pretty good. Well, yeah, this feels like a real camp. Like all these yeah. people feel like they are of the age that they're trying to present mm-hmm. for the film, and it really feels like a real camp because they do have like a, just like a big, basically army of extras going on. Like compared to Madman, where there's nobody. Nobody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, it, even in the other burning, is most of the time you know you have late twenties pretending that they're campers. Hmm. But yeah, this really does feel like a real camp. I'm just going to interrupt you briefly. You know how I know it felt like a real camp to me, and I, they actually felt like teenagers. It reminded me of my own like kind of uh, adolescence to my own period of being twelve and thirteen, and reminded me of being in the seventh layer of hell of uh, these social situations. Um, I was I was watching it and going. I need to get the fuck away from these people right now. That I, I immediately had this very visceral impact of like this oppressive uh, jock culture, and I'm like, no, I gotta get away from. Well, this. If, if you're having panic attacks, you know it's good. No, no the, yeah, the, the killer, the killer, I can deal with. The you know people playing volleyball, people like, no, I stay away. I stay away from them. You know, sociopath. Yeah. It's just weird, too, because it's not, like, necessarily, like, really uh, pronounced uh, sort of jock characters so much. Uh, the, the real the real antagonists are Meg and Judy. Like, no, they're the, the real... Females. This is a very female-driven film, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're they're picking on Angela for, throughout the whole movie. They drive all the bad things that happen to Angela, mm-hmm. essentially, and then the consequences, of course, spring from that to other yeah, people. Yeah. Judy, I mean, she is just a... Uh, bitch. And, yeah, like, and then she, she, she freaks out and then just screams at one of the counselors and she smacks a bitch. Yeah, the and counselor... She's, like, devastated that she had to smack someone, but she yeah. basically had to smack her. Yeah, and I, I like that moment, too, because, like, the older counselor smacks her and then she realizes, oh, shit, she fucked up. She could be reported and fired for that kind of thing, you know, so... But that's the whole point is the people like that need a smack, and that's why they're like that. Yeah. In general, like, uh, what what are both of your impressions of this film overall? Oh, I just uh, I just think it's really funny. Is most of these films that you see tits fest and stuff like that, and all you do is see uh, naked guys running around the docks and stuff, and then at the end you see a big schwanger. And it's really <laughs> sad that a thirteen year old girl is hung better than I am. It's just one of those things that you, you have to live to, you have to live with. You have to learn how to deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I did notice is the first actual kill is the first sign that you actually get to see that it's actually a girl killer. The, um, uh, the, the killer on the boat, when when uh, he pops up under the boat, you get to see the long hair of the girl. Yeah, uh, well, the the way they did it, they they tried their best to like make it sort of inconspicuous. Ricky sort of has semi long hair on him, you know, like he you know he he's got that sort of seventies, uh, late seventies, early eighties kind of standard male haircut, right? So they try to hide it as well as possible. I think in the modern age with uh, fucking Blu-ray and high definition and shit like that, when you see, even when you see like a decent, half-decent print on YouTube, it's kind of hard not to tell actually what's going on. Like on VHS, I think it would be a lot different. Because there's, there's a scene where the killer comes in to uh, kill Judy, uh, which we will definitely get to talk about that scene for a few minutes, I think. He's supposed to be shadowed in the door. You know, like, on VHS, it probably would have been a lot darker than it is, but it's a little bit too bright where you can kind of see, like, okay, that's uh, that's a dude. He's, he, it's a dude wearing a, a wig. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll go to you, Daniel. What what are your, like, general impressions of the film overall, though? I liked this film. I, it gave me a lot to think about. 
and and that's always a, a point of pride for me, you know, when I see a film and I go, you know, actually, I would watch this again because it, uh, in terms, for, for me, I think about a lot of the gender issues and the uh, kind of the, the sexual issues that are that are going on underneath the surface here. And uh, culturally, I have a I have a lot to say about that. If you want to talk about that, if not, uh, mm-hmm. that's that's fine. I think that I liked the the pacing of it. Strangely, the kind of like you get these kind of like oh now we're just all kind of goofing around and playing volleyball and doing you know stupid camp activities. And then there's the kill that happens, and then like oh we go back to the kind of kill ordinary 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 kill ordinary ordinary pacing really worked for me in terms of uh, kind of building this this overall sense of impending dread. I will say that I thought the twist ending originally when I first when I went to Google it was that the the boy was going to be the killer, not the the girl. I think we were supposed to assume it was Angela who was the killer. I thought that was kind of the immediate thought, and then the fact that you never saw her, although we really should call him Peter if we're, mm-hmm. we don't want to misgender him. But, I mean, he's really Peter, but I thought that the twist, quote-unquote, was going to be that it was really the the boy, the cousin, but it turned out to be a, a very different twist, which I thought was interesting, um, although I think that uh, some of the ways they get there are things I would talk about in, in more detail if there's interest in that. Um, but I did I did like the film overall, and I, I think it's kind of kind of fascinating and enjoyable, and... Um, Good. I think it I spices know. itself up with some comedy at times because uh, right after the first death scene, you get to the one counselor going, "These peckerheads all suck," trying to clean up the mess and stuff. How the hell did that get there? And just all this kind of crazy stuff and running around trying to clean up everything that they screwed up. And uh, the one comical bee scene, I think it's a comical bee death because if you look at the end of the stall where the feet keep getting shown, obviously he can just lean down and just scoot right under the bottom of it, but yet he can't get out for some reason. Yeah. Right. The, the broom's in the way, things like that. Like, I find that very comical. Um, it, it's, it's, playing, it's playing with some of these tropes, and it's giving you an out. I mean, it, it's kind of giving you both the, the kind of horror, the, the, the gore of it, mm-hmm. although toned down considerably from what other films in the genre do. But right. at the same time, giving you some some bits of humor, some bits of character, some bits of um, I thought my favorite character in the in the film was really uh, the owner of the camp. That's the thing is that you were going to say about the the first death, the first in- incident scene. You really get a sense of how much Mel is a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> he is almost just as a piece of shit as the mayor from Jaws. That much yeah. of a piece of shit. Yeah, and he is. It's uh, great. Totally. He's all about self-interest, self-preservation. Uh, he, he all he cares about is making money off this camp. He's like the worst possible guy as a camp owner because he's obviously he, he must be like in 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 the past he must be like a used car car salesman or something, yeah. and he just sort of lucked into owning this camp. Mm-hmm. Um, like when the cook gets burned up, first thing he does yeah. is put the, right. his, let it go. go get out. <laughs> he put, yeah, he's like let's just sweep this under the rug, get this ambulance out of here before any of the kids see it. And pretend nothing happened. Hey, hey, hey we don't want to. We don't want to upset the kids now. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Hey, and he's like, Rodney Dangerfield in Mel's position. Hey, oh, 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 oh. He'll 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 pay James Earl Jones' dad an extra fifty dollars a week to keep tight lipped and run the kitchen, oh, and then all the uh, I, I'm assuming Mexicans who are like there to clean the kitchen or whatever. You know, it's it's almost like this uh, idiot asshole old white man basically, you know, treating treating the uh, coloreds, uh, you know. Well, <laughs> and, 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 this is exactly like a weird Italian vibe from him. <laughs> weird, like a 
almost uh, the, the, the he is he is he is totally the New York Jew. I'm sorry. Yeah, like, yeah that's exactly what I was going to get that. I was trying to say that, but like trying to not say it offensively, but at the same time, yes. <laughs> he was getting that kind of like they just just move it on, right? I gotta make some money here. Just hold on. Just come, then, well, we're good. I mean, but, hey, there is an element of the the caricature, you know, of the of the mm-hmm. oh, I'm the I'm the New York Jew, and this is this is you know, I'm the I'm the rich Jewish guy, and I own this camp, and I'm gonna make as much money off of it as possible, you know. In other shoes, I would find that you know this kind of like wow, that's kind of a weird offensive stereotype, but. You know, you almost kind of forgive certain things. But it's from actually genre, you know? perfectly honest at the same time. <laughs> uh, what is uh, uh, was this film? Where was this film shot? Was this film on Long Island? Uh, I don't know where this was shot actually. Um, well, like have... every character. I mean, this is very like all these kids come from New York. I mean, this yeah, is because you can hear the accents and everything. These are rich Brooklyn kids. Like yeah. that's who mm-hmm. these kids are. You because, know, because yeah, uh, um, the one film was filmed in uh, in uh, Southampton. I'm trying to remember what, what which one it was. It was either like uh, Madman or The Burning or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. I've been to Southampton. I've actually been there. I just didn't know that was filmed there at the time. But this yeah. definitely has like a South, like Long Island. Yeah, like, Long Island or Brooklyn yeah. or the Bronx or something. I mean, they're very they're very clearly these. You know, it's such I'd almost say stereotypes, but the fact that they probably just cast those people it's and they put them in the movie. You know, yeah. it's it's like almost like you can't blame it for like everybody kind of sounds like they're from you know just north of New Jersey because <laughs> they they were you know like yeah, I mean, if, I, if, I, if I made a film around here and cast everyone, be like, well, that's kind of like very racistly in you know indoctrinated Pennsylvania Dutch. No, actually, this is just all the people I had. Yeah, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> this is just the way it is. The thing about Mel I like is apparently being a above middle aged camp owner, you know, that can uh, that can kind of attract the ladies, you know, because oh, Meg was all about trying to get with him, and and he got on his best either lime green sort of uh, jacket and his uh, yellow pants, and he was looking around for her and stuff, and he was mm-hmm. about to have a great night with her, and then oh no, she's dead. Yeah. She stabbed right down the back in the shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, she tried to get the he tried to get the Miami. Vice pastel sport yeah. jacket look on and didn't work out yeah. so much. It's it's the leisure suit phenomenon, yeah, you know. Oh, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna throw on my, my loafers, my penny loafers, and my leisure suit, and the ladies will come and knock it. They would just that is that is what it was. Come to the Casbah. But I will <laughs> I will say the the one of the best the special effects scenes of the movie is Mel the arrow through the neck scene. Oh yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Mel uh, eventually he uh, he's just. Convinced and, like he, he he doesn't just beat him up. He like gorilla stomps his ass. He's just yeah. like forearms. Forearms. He, he, he yeah. headlocks poor Ricky. Drags him into the woods and just beats the crap out of him. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean he's not punching. He's just gorilla stomp. It's like I'm watching Dawn of the Planet of the Apes all over again. He's yeah, going yeah. town. So let's talk about probably the most impressive death scene really in the film because of what it doesn't show but what it implies. Ah. We'll talk about Judy being killed in this. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that is yes. the best death scene in the film. I, I, think have, a very, I have a very long and, and thought-out quote that I have highlighted here about that scene. Well, we'll throw that right in there, sir. Hot clit. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's that's. You don't really need to say more than that to to mm-hmm. get a sense of how she dies with yeah. the with the cool the curling iron. So yeah. uh, I, at we... first, when I first got it, I figured I mean like a cruel, you know, like carterized vagina kind of aspect of the film. But then you see like it open up, and I'm like, oh, she's ducking her. That's yeah, rough. that's rough. 
it's 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 really graphic, but it's not at the same time. It's, it's no, just it's really. Graphic. I mean, and that's that's the thing I loved about old films is they made shadows make you afraid. I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, I don't want to say it's cliche or anything like that, but this is what the film did. Yes, it's cheaper that way, but it's effective that way. She's getting smothered by the pillow. You you play on the shadows. You get the sense of a pending doom, and then the the fucking the 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 cool the curlers open, and then in they go, and you. No! I'm like, oh, that's rough. That's yeah. awesome, but it's rough. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that, Daniel? I mean, A, I think it's just a, a brilliantly directed scene. Ditto everything that Paul just said, in the sense of, I, I love to play the shadows on the wall. I think one of my favorite shots in the film is actually where her hands are reaching up and grasping. Um, that's that For me, that feels very German expressionism. And I think this film, again, where when you can show restraint, you can actually play the horror for more. Because I think, especially, you know, not, not as a... I, I view this from the outside, to some degree. As not someone who follows the horror genre religiously the way you guys do. You know, I get the sense that, in a lot of cases, you know, kind of... You go to these films looking for, oh, look at that great gore effect, look at that great... And, and that's fun. I, I love that, too. But um, it's almost like when you have the great gore effects, and you think of them just as effects, it almost distances you from the viscerality of it, to some degree. And so by implying more than you're, you're showing, it actually makes it more real, in a sense, at least for a modern viewer. And uh, I don't know, I, I've discussed on this podcast before my love for kind of black and white and that sort of thing, and this, like, that was a scene that was screaming to be black and white, I think, you know, just such, <laughs> like, it, you, could, you could imagine that being in a film, it feels very Hitchcockian almost, in, in that way, um, as does the kind of psychological realism of the, uh, of the motivations of the killer. Yeah, um, uh, this feels very much like a companion piece to Psycho in certain ways to me. Yeah, the implications that uh, Judy, who is the most sexualized character in the film, gets punished for basically using her sexuality as uh, both a weapon and you know, uh, basically the spearhead of her antagonism towards people and how she manipulates people, and then she gets punished for it in the most brutally. Uh, appropriate way, I guess. Uh, well, and if Peter is essentially, if we are implied that he is killing because he is going through puberty, but being in this kind of enforced gender role that isn't his own. Yeah, well, Angela's um, actually uh, been driven to think that she should be on that side, too, and and the one girl that that, that uh, Judy actually seems to facilitate towards is actually someone that actually was uh, going towards Angela for a while, too, and Angela seemed to reciprocate that. Yeah, the friend of Ricky, the character who was interested in Angela, and for a while, Angela actually showed the same interest back. I mean, that's got to be a real just play on the brain there, just for about one character. To be... Yeah, the um, that character, I, I actually recognize that actor. He is... Uh, you're talking about the blonde kid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the blonde kid. He was in uh, the Manhattan Projects. John Lithgow really? from a few years later. Yeah, um, that's a that's a film that uh, we should definitely discuss at some point on this podcast because it's a fun little nerdy, uh, you know, science geek movie. Which you know, I always love those. So, um, but yeah, he's the lead in that, and that's only from a couple of years later. I like him in the film, and I like the relationship, that kind of budding romance between them. You know. My my difficulty with this film in terms of kind of where it ends, where you where you end up, because there is such a history of people with uh, kind of alternative sexualities being vilified in these kinds of films. Ostracized. Ostr- well, that the that the villain of like Silence of the Lambs is a is a man who you know wants to be a woman. Yeah. And you know that that is that is oh that's evil and wrong. 
Yeah. At the same time, these films were kind of the only way that people who were of these kind of uh, alternative gender and sexual minorities got to see themselves on screen. But yeah. every time you saw yourself on screen, you were a villain. You were also cutting people up. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so there is that kind of element to it. You know, my, my the way I judge these is would I would I take a, a trans man or a trans woman and sit them down and watch this film with them? And I, I think I would have a hard time. I mean, I would have to, like, say, okay, this is what this film is. Because, uh, I mean, I, I know some trans men who, for whom this would be incredibly traumatic to, to go through this experience of, of seeing this film. You know, I don't have that experience, but I'm a cis man, so it doesn't really affect me at all. But I, that's kind of where I land on it. I kind, of, I kind of am very ambivalent about what this film is culturally today. Mm-hmm. Although I think that in 81, it was probably a little bit more straightforward. I spent a lot um, of my teenage years wearing women's clothing, so I'm pretty okay with it. <laughs> Just a, a few facts on, on this one. Um, so when they when they do the murder scenes, all they basically show you is, for the most part, is the killer's hands. So the guy who played Ricky, Jonathan Tierstein, was actually the stand-in for all those scenes. Uh-huh. He was so so you see a sort of a more manly kind of like uh, yeah. forearm okay. hand, right? Put a glove on it, and it's yellow. Yeah. Uh, so and he even donned a wig for that back lit shot where he goes and finds Judy, right? So mm-hmm. it was it was him doing all that stuff. So it, it was a subtle way to try to, like, fuck with the viewer's mind and confuse them. Uh, the budget for this was $350,000, so actually the same as uh, Madman. Madman. Um, and it made $11 million. <laughs> a little end. bit better than Madman. Yeah, a little bit better. Just a touch. The, the the final scene where we get the reveal that Angela is actually Peter, and you see the full frontal nude with his schlonger dangling in the wind there. Oh. Um, this was actually accomplished using a, a nude man wearing a mask cast from Felicia Rose's face. Uh, basically what they did is they got the dude drunk, <laughs> so he would he had stripped down. It was this college uh, student. They got him drunk. It wasn't until, like, 2014 that you actually get a fully uncensored version of this from Screen Factory. Until then, the VHS was pretty much the only way you could find it totally uncensored. Yeah. Uh, they, they only cut sort of minor things out of it, though. It wasn't like any really big cuts or anything like that. The The series creator, Robert Hilsick, he apparently going to reboot this with a basically a remake of this film, I think. This sort of seems to be the plans, which I'm not too fond of the idea. I don't know the, how you do this in 2015. Like, I just did a, they just did the return to Sleepaway Camp with uh, Alicia Rose. Felicia Rose, Felicia yeah. Felicia Rose returning as Angela. Yeah. Uh, I kind of, after I watched 2 and 3, I kind of got used to the Angela that they had. Uh, Which but was yeah, Pamela for, Springsteen, Pamela Bruce Springsteen's yep. daughter, uh, yep. sister. Yeah, sister, yeah, and uh, Camp New Hope and Camp New Horizon or whatever you know the, mm-hmm. those, and her her silly you know very vigilant. Uh, you must be good or you will die. But she ends up killing everybody anyway, if they're good or not. It's really kind of yeah. funny watching uh, Felicia Rose again as Angela was kind of interesting. It wasn't as good as the first one, and I had to get used to the fact that okay, now it's not her. No, it's not Pamela. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's it's good. a different it's a different character. Like yeah, when when they did the sequels, it's it, honestly as much as I like Sleep, Sleepaway Camp too, it's not the same characters. I don't consider no. it part of the same series. Right. Honestly. It's it's completely it is it is very different. I mean, even the the, the take on the character is different from yeah, yeah. from Sleepaway one to two to three. Two and three are like the whole a whole different style of movie. Yeah, yeah. One and four. So I'll, I'll go to you, Daniel, first, uh, your final thoughts on this film and if you recommend it or not. 
I definitely recommend it with the caveats that I uh, kind of mentioned earlier. Um, you know, obviously, uh, be aware of what's in it, although being aware of what's in it kind of ruins the effect of the ending. But mm-hmm. I still think, I mean, I will I will actually probably rewatch this one. Um, this is the first one of the series that I'm definitely like, you know, I would rewatch this to uh, gather some of those nuances that I missed before. I will say that the uh, gay couple at the beginning, I, I missed the fact that it was a I just, I kind of, you know, a lot of times when I put these movies on, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, okay, sitting down, I'm kind of getting a cup of coffee, and I'm not, like, paying, like, super close attention to the, like, the opening shots, the credit sequences and stuff. So um, maybe there was, like, a very clear shot that I missed. Um, but then when uh, they are in the uh, loving embrace and the memory of, of Peter, you know, I'm definitely like, these are two very straight men who do not know how to act gay at all. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> um, uh, the, the, these do not look like gay men in the slightest. I don't know. I feel like I want to watch it again, and and uh, I would probably have more to say. But I do. I would probably recommend this. I think this is pretty effective. Although I don't know how you can watch this by today's standards and not think of Wet Hot American Summer, the entire film. Um, yeah, which was um... the the creators of Wet Hot American Summer basically like they they credited this one as one of their like yeah, uh, yeah. influences. And I mean there are even like uh, my wife has been watching the uh, the TV show on Netflix that's come mm-hmm. out now. And I mean there were plot points in this film that seemed to be directly ripped off in that. Mm-hmm. Um, with the the girlfriend like oh it's the next year and oh we dated last year and then the girlfriend is you know being snooty towards him and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was I can go for the big jock now. Right or or whatever. So it was it was definitely a uh, you know like oh this is where this came from. I get it. You know it's I think it's hard for a modern viewer maybe to to see it for what it is. But no, that's cool. Uh, Paul, what are your final thoughts on uh, this one? Great film. It's great for the camp killer style. It definitely takes a a new leave and a new uh, approach to most of the other ones. You never find another film basically that. that in the 80s, that that fits this kind of mold the way it does. It makes it definitely goes away from the the standard. So it has a lot of psychological tricks, tr- uh, twists, emotional dr- twists, and and uh, stuff that people you know in the media now talk about more so than ever is gender identity, the idea of you know psychosis and stuff forced upon by the media or parents or however you're supposed to live your life by what people think you're supposed to do and how it can fuck people up right <laughs> i mean then you start getting, uh, the one the the one point that you people have missed that is the most prudent part of this whole film is at the end it has the cop with the worst fake mustache i've ever seen <laughs> you forgot that very 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 prudent part when he comes out from seeing meg dead or, and he comes out, and he just has this 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 camera is just fixed on this worst fake mustache in any film ever, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and that, and then you can see the even the cop is he's wearing a mask of what he sh- they think he should look like. See, we're all we're all wearing masks. So <laughs> let's let's be true to ourselves and put on some makeup and let's do the high shay. So let's do this. Let's go. Let's, do, let's watch Sleepaway Camp in our in our favorite nighty. With some Hagadas. That's what I'm going to do right now. So that actually sounds I, pretty comfortable. <laughs> I like it. I think it's good. Snuggly, Hagadasy. I like it. Very right. nighty in Scotch. That's the there that's you go. Really Scotch, Hagadas, nighty, Lee, snuggling up beside me. I like it. Hey, sounds comfortable. 
Hey, this is Tom Six, director of the Human Centipede movies. I wish I was as good as David Cronenberg, but I'm fucking garbage. But at least I can drown my sorrows away by listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight, a movie podcast. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll move on now to 1981's The Burning. This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Sneak on back to the campsite. Get some matches. Build us a hot fire. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. I cried out, I will return, I will have my revenge. He lives on whatever he can catch right now. Summer five years ago is about to happen again and again and again. The burning. Directed by Tony Malum, uh, written by Harvey Weinstein, Tony Malum, Brad Gray, Peter Lawrence, and Bob Weinstein, and it's starring Brian Matthews, Lee Aries, uh, Brian Backer, Larry Joshua, Jason Alexander, yes, that Jason Alexander, Ned Eisenberg, Carrick Glenn, Carolyn Houlihan, uh, Fisher Stevens, yes, that Fisher Stevens, uh, Lou David, and Holly Hunter, yes, that Holly Hunter. Uh, so there's actually uh, quite a few uh, sort of first-timers who actually went on to do quite a bit of stuff in this one. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the very first Miramax film, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's the very first Miramax film. This is what got the uh, Weinstein started uh, to yep. their gigantic I, empire they own now. Right? I always like to say, you know, horror started some of the biggest names in the industry. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about last week, uh, Madman, how Madman uh, learned that this film was being made, which was also centered around the sort of cropsy urban legend that sort of went up and down New York State, and they decided to slightly change Madman, sort of distance themselves from that. This film totally embraces the sort of cropsy thing, uh, outright calling their killer cropsy in this film. This one involves a really horrible incident that happens years in the past. Some kids in a summer camp, uh, Camp Blackfoot, I believe it's called. Blackfoot, yes, correct. Yeah, they pull a prank on Cropsy, who is this alcoholic uh, groundskeeper of the camp, who little, apparently little deformed looking. Yeah, well, he's got that sort of pig nose going on there, but yeah, uh, a little weird slack jaw on him. So yeah. yeah, they like to make fun of him. They call him uh, cruel and evil. Yeah, apparently he picked on the kids and abused the kids, so they decided to get back at him. Uh, they pull this prank that goes horribly wrong because Cropsy lives essentially in a ticking time bomb of a fucking shed. Because <laughs> when, when, they, when they put the camera going through, you see, oh, here's all these gas cans and rags. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
kerosene lanterns hanging here. This giant oh. wool canvas blankets. Yeah. Oh, gee, oh. what the fuck's going to happen if you put a fucking flaming skull there with worms crawling out of it to scare the guy? He's going to mm-hmm. burn to death. And he does. He, he yep. Well, he doesn't burn to death, but it's he burns up a, in the... It's almost, a, you know, like, it just happens that there's gasoline cans all over him and things like that. It's almost comical in a way, the beginning yeah. of the film, if you, if you look at it in a cynical way. Yeah, yeah. When, when he knocks the skull over, and then he's like, the, the bed gets set on fire or whatever, and he's like jumping out of bed, and then he's, and then suddenly there's a kerosene canister there, and he just yeah. knocks it over. I literally laughed out loud at that moment. Yes, like, exactly. Isn't it comical? It's, it's, it's very, it's very like, okay, yeah, like, look, can we make this slightly less obvious that we're, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it releases the giant tarantulas. Irony, <laughs> irony had not been invented in 1983, apparently, but, yeah. uh, you know. And also, uh, I will say this, uh, one, one early fault of the film, although I really love this film, with spoilers, I really love this film, uh, yeah, one of the early okay. faults is the guy in the burn suit jumping out of the cabin. So fucking obvious he's in a burn suit. Like, yeah. his head is obviously covered with the hood or whatever. It's not, you know, it's not the guy's, it's not the character's head. You can, you can definitely see that. But anyway, it's an effective setup all, all the same. They wanted um, the stunt guy to live, so we understand. Yeah, and so Cropsy rolls down a hill, he's, and, he, and he falls into, like, a stream or whatever, and they take him to the hospital, they put the skin grafts to him, they don't take, and so he's apparently, like, in the hospital or a mental ward or something like that for, like, five years before they finally release him. And, uh, yeah, he's not too happy about his situation. He, um, Big and era cutbacks in medical care, that's what happened, you know. Exactly. Like, oh, no, no, we're, we're out, you know. Yeah, yeah, if, this I, was, if this was in Canada, if this yeah. was in Canada, yeah. you'd be fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, he, he would still, oh, be, he would still womp, be in the bird, you know. They actually use him as a, uh, uh, I guess they use him as a, a hazing ritual for the new candidates. They give him a hard time and make him so go see Cropsy to see, to, uh, to toughen up the new guys. And when the, yeah, and the, that new guy was clearly like 40 years old. Yeah, yeah, the new guy. Well, you know, how new can you be? And uh, I guess Cropsy like just decides to wake up and scare the living crap out of the intern and the uh, resident there. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure if he, at this point in time, if he, Cropsy was released or Cropsy escaped. They really didn't compound on that. No, he he was released. Uh, the, the the initial scene is like just a week after he got burned up. And, okay. And then in the, uh, the uh, black orderly or whatever he is 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 taking that new doctor, and you're right, Daniel, yeah, new guy, guy looks like he's, like, 50. He looks like he's been a medical professional for years, and, I mean, seriously, med students, like, dare each other with this shit. That's how you get through med school. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, like, that was, uh, of all of the unrealistic shit in all of these movies, that was definitely the moment where I'm like, there's no way this doctor lets this orderly get the better of him in this situation. Like, that is just... That is completely unrealistic of this of this character. Took me right out of the movie there because I'm like, no, this is horribly, horribly unrealistic. <laughs> Immortal no. killer burned over all of his skin, coming around, killing people, magically transporting around the woods. That I buy. <laughs> a fully fledged doctor like not being able to go into a burn unit. No, that I do not believe for a second. Yeah. Uh, so so Cropsy does get released after five years. Um, Hey, someone has been watching their Italian uh, giallos because he gets released in a dark trench coat and a black hat with gloves mm-hmm. and everything. Yep. All, all and goes together. kills the hooker. 
and he immediately goes and finds himself a hooker and kills her. It's a weird. Up. It's a weird death scene. Yeah, it is. That hooker again, uh, uh, sort of a believability issue. And I can't believe I'm bringing this stuff up. I sound like I'm shitting on the movie because I really like it. But I mean, there's no way that hooker would take that guy. Uh, even if she couldn't see his face, there's there's no way she would take that guy up there unless it's she had a, street smarts and unless, she didn't have it. Unless she had a pimp backing her up, she would yeah. not be taking that guy up to her. Also, apartment. looks. She didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's definitely. Well, I guess you could make a case that maybe she's an aging hooker, so maybe she had to take what she could get. I'm taking um, Eddie John today. This is yeah, uh, this, Eddie John this is, this is the pre-Giuliani Times Square. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, she, she uh, unfortunately takes her takes him up to her apartment, and he stabs her with her shares, and decides to keep those, I guess, or you know. Gets a gets a motivation anyway for his murder weapon, and he's immediately heading towards summer camp. Mm-hmm. Camp Blackfoot was burnt to the ground, but there's another camp just up the river, so that's that's handy. And he immediately starts staking it out, um, and that basically takes us to our main characters. Actually, in this one, I think feels like a real summer camp as well. Like there's just so many kids in it. Like there's kids of all ages. You got your older kids been there a couple years, and then you got all the new like younger kids and stuff as well. You meet this sort of cavalcade of characters, and although you don't get to know them super well, I found actually the acting in this film was like really engaging. Like I liked everyone I saw. Jason Alexander kid, he's going places. Yeah, he was really he was really good in this. You know, like, he would be a really whiny guy on a show one day. Yeah, really good. <laughs> yeah. Castanja. Yeah. Uh, that's that, one that man's gonna play say, a cartoon like, uh, duck. Like, yeah, he's... <laughs> there's there's finally a mixture of campers, even though most are in their twenties. I mean, I I felt like most of them looked of age. Some of them, like the the little uh, redheaded girl, their tiger or whatever her name was, like she looked like a fifteen, sixteen year old. And, and there, yeah, I like uh, Jason Alexander talking about the sweet meat. There's no problem yeah. with that. <laughs> oh, like Jason that. Jason Alexander looked maybe what twenty here, maybe yeah. at the most. Uh, most of the kid, most of them looked like they were young to me. They looked and like I, I did. I did like when um, I'm just gonna go, just jump right ahead because I'm just gonna say when when it none of these characters are safe. You can't no. tell which one's gonna get killed, and which one's not. I mean, yeah. Uh, the canoe raft scene, he screws everybody up, and you, it's a whole. It, I mean, there's a there's a a whole plethora of different types of of characters and things on those rafts, and he just screws everyone up. I, yeah. I this film is. Great, I just say that right now. I think it's great. Yeah, well, the the setup for the plot is essentially okay. So you got Cropsy coming back to this camp, and what I really liked about how this started out is that for essentially the first hour, he doesn't kill anyone after he kills the hooker. Like mm-hmm, yeah. you, you spend like almost the first hour just getting to know all these characters. Plot story. Yeah. Yeah, and and you see Cropsy. He's definitely stalking around uh, the camp because they do the point of view shots with him. And I like how they uh, rub Vaseline on the lens to make it look like his eyes are a little fucked up or whatever, right? But, he, yeah, he's stalking around these people. You think he's going to kill certain characters here and there. They make it kind of realistic in the fact that Cropsey realizes that I can't start killing people here because there's too many fucking people, and I'm going to get found out. Um, it's not until the older kids take a canoe trip up the lake to the old site where Camp Blackfoot used to be mm-hmm where he finally gets the opportunity to start hunting them down because they're isolated from the rest of the camp at that point. I so. was really happy when I first watched this movie and I thought I would have another uh, a madman where like this like obviously worst hunk in the world was the, the man, the man, <laughs> you know what I mean? But then Glarus comes into the 
situation. Uh, Glazer, yeah. Glazer, yeah. He's supposed to be the the kind of hunk, but he's a complete douchebag at the same time. But of course, then you have the head the head counselor, uh, Todd. I think believe mm-hmm. his name is Todd. Something like that, more yeah. Like, yeah. More of a, a hunk vibe, but like you have this really horned up scrawny kind of I don't know straggly guy that at first and he's like he wants all the one uh, characters oh yeah uh, Eddie there wants Eddie to... yeah Eddie wants uh, and I'm like oh another one okay but uh, and oh she scared Eddie scares her by the way they have this sort of bully character in Glazer then they have the the guy he's bullying who is uh, Andy Alfred. I guess is, or Alfred yeah Alfred Alfred um, who is you know he's kind of he's sort of uh, weird you know because you know the, res- the resident spaz yeah because yeah that's that's a good way to put it because he's you know he's doing the peep and tom thing uh, a little bit <laughs> he definitely likes to follow <laughs> people around him. I like to hang out and just randomly follow people for no reason and get the shit beat out of me when I'm caught but it's not my fault okay I'll go to you Daniel what do what are your uh, sort of uh, general impressions of the film I think this is really effective. Really enjoyed this. It was it was a fun watch. Um, I did watch both of these kind of back to back this morning. I didn't have time to watch them at all this week, so I literally was just like, all right, I've got four hours and I've got three hours of movie to watch. So let's sit down and do <laughs> it. You know, um, kind of one of those. So I'm sure I missed some some details, unfortunately. I would uh, also revisit this one at some point. <laughs> Again, I really like Jason Alexander in this. He was he was kind of my, the most fun thing that I enjoyed about it was was that um, the effects are amazing. Savini again. There's just no question that Savini's the man. You know, I, I know that's a controversial statement, but Savini, <laughs> Savini, great gore effects. Um, I uh, really liked the fact that you know you do spend about half of this film not really in the uh, kind of slasher mode, like straight up people wandering around being killed. I like the fact that it's not until they do kind of go into this isolated thing, and then Cropsy kind of gets rid of the canoes and forces them to kind of fend for themselves. I, I really liked that element of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I kind of wish that was more of the film. I kind of wish there was more of a sense of, like, you know, isolated group of campers with no contact with the outside world, foraging for food or whatever, and being hunted down by this guy. I think that would be a, a, a fun sort of alternate take on this mm-hmm. sort of idea. Um, i definitely see that movie. If, uh, definitely. If you want to watch a movie like that, watch The Forest. Okay, well, I'll write it down. Watch the forest. I also really uh, liked the beginning where he does go into the city. I really liked the element of that. I thought that would that would have been an alternate, you know, like he goes and becomes a Jack the Ripper character and starts yeah, killing. Yeah, that would be a know, great yellow. Absolutely. You know, yeah. You know, I I think that would that would be another fun thing. I, I don't know. Uh, this it was a lot of fun to watch. It gave me kind of less to chew on, I think, than uh, Sleepaway Camp. Which, uh, by the way, apparently on VHS, you guys probably already know this. It was uh, also known as Nightmare Vacation, yeah. which I think is a much better title. <laughs> yeah. um, just to throw that in, although that might have been confused with the National Lampoon's Vacations film. Yeah, it was Nightmare uh, Weekend and a couple of different other films from the, the early '80s there, but. But I like the burning. I think the burning's yeah. pretty good. I I love the uh, the look of Cropsy. Yeah. Although uh, Tom Savini wasn't happy with that makeup. Apparently, that was one of his least favorite ones he did. Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> well, yeah. If if it makes you feel better, I hear he's kind of an ass on the uh, convention circuit. So. I've met him. Have yeah, you? Yeah, all right. Yeah. Like we said, there's there's a pretty likable cast. I think the acting's pretty good. 
The setups are pretty good for basically everything you see here. This was the film, of course, that launched uh, the Weinstein brothers into stardom. This was their, you know, their first Miramax film, and this got them. Even though this film was not successful, uh, the budget was every anywhere from five hundred thousand to one point five million, and one point five million seems to be the one most people settle on. It only made uh, seven hundred and seven thousand apparently altogether. So it was a bit of a box office failure, but uh, it's still got them places. Apparently Harvey Weinstein wrote this before Friday the 13th was written. Oh. So uh, apparently it predates that to to uh, some extent. This was one of the first films that landed on the UK's uh, Video Nasties list. And oh. It was hev- heavily, heavily censored in the UK. This was a film that Tom Zavini took when he, he basically turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 to do this one. Because uh, at the time Zavini made this big point above... Uh, oh, we're going to bring Jason back for part two. And he's like, no, Jason was never alive. He was dead by part one. You can't bring him back. He's dead, so I'm not going to do those movies. Of course, then he came back and did, like, part five or four or five or whatever. So, you know, he kind of hypocrited that. And five that is the worst because it wasn't Jason. It was just the guy using Jason's uh, legend to kill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the video Nasty Things in England was funny because Evil Dead 2 was on it for a while. But mm-hmm. the only thing they cut out was when when uh, Billy Bob kicked, kicked him in the face when he was on the ground. That's the only thing they edited out of the movie because you can't kick a man in, in, when he's down in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a really weird cut for Evil Dead 2. Everything else was left in, but they cut that out. That's the weirdest yeah. edit I think I've ever heard. So the, yeah, so this one was heavily edited though for the U.S. audience. Um, it wasn't until MGM released it, uh, sort of a almost a bare bones release, but it, it was uncut. They cut so much from the raft scene. That was the big scene they cut from, and that's sort of the set piece of the film. Like that's the yeah. big major set piece. And, yeah, that's a definitely a climax. Where Cropsey just kills like what five or six kids all six at once. Six kids. I, I, uh, that's where I have down a uh, Woodstock from Short Circuit. Can't yeah. program anything without fingers. <laughs> yep, because yeah. he gets his fingers strapped up. And everyone on that raft dies. And that's the thing is, they have a cavalcade of different characters on there that normally you would see walk away. Even a young woman, very young girl, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. they're all dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he kills indiscriminately. Um, of course, how do you hide a guy that size with those pruning shoes in a canoe when you see the canoe? You yeah. actually see inside the canoe, but yet he pops up out of nowhere. Uh, the other uh, uh, thing I have is actually, uh, I have it quite uh, quoted here, actually hidden with the dead girl under the pillow, uh, under the sleeping bag. What the fuck? Because he has, yeah. the, the Glazer has no idea he's laying right next to the girl until you see the shears and then just automatically pops up without actually any movement and picks, picks Glazer right up in the air in one stroke and then puts mm-hmm. him against the, the tree. Good scene, but I was like, really? Physics yeah, have nothing to do with this? There, there are some suspension of disbelief issues with some of the some of those scenes, but if I'm, you get third degree burns across all your body, you become a superhuman character. That's well, that's, that's what right. yeah. <laughs> Well, I, obviously, you don't feel anything anymore because your nerves are all dead. You yeah, know, you feel everything. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, um, I, I, I did want to mention uh, Glazer, although he is kind of like the. Uh, typical bully character, jock bully kind of character. It's interesting, like, there's there's actually more depth to that character than yeah. you would you reminds me of Dugan. He reminds me of Dugan. Yeah, Dugan, exactly. Yep. What are you giving me a hard time, Todd? He's the one looking at everybody. What the hell? Because first off, he's a very ineffective bully. The only guy he manages to bully is... Alfred. 
Yeah, it's Alfred. Everyone else basically tells him to shut the fuck up and get away from him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically relents to that. Um, when he's with uh, the girl he's interested in, and he and he's basically a one-minute wonder in the sack, it's obviously he has insecurities, and he's like, okay, so I suppose you want to go back to the camp. And she's like, she actually likes him. And she's like, no, no, we can we can stay, you know, and stuff like that. And you can actually see a sort of confidence regaining. And there's actually a little bit more depth to that character. It's like you can actually mm-hmm. see why he's a bully, like he's so insecure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I yeah. thought there were some nice nice little nuances to some of the characters in this film that you usually don't see in this sort of film. Yeah. I mean, just like the basic of it, uh, I have written down here, like Alfred, he's a spaz, but he's also a hero in the end. Mm-hmm. And then Todd, he's the hero, but he's also the cause of the whole fucking movie. Yeah, because he's yeah he's one of the he's one of the original kids that got cropsy the way he is. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I thought was really cool is that I I think I have it written down here. I can't remember where the hell I wrote it down, wrote it down at, but uh, the music after I think Alfred stabs Cropsy in the back, it, it has a giallo feel mixed with kind it of does. dead. Yeah, it's the Rick it's uh, Rick Wakeman's uh, score. You're right, like that made me think giallo as well, like. Just the way Cropsy's dressed in the opening scene where he kills the hooker and stuff, like that's straight up Giallo. Like yeah. I, I have to think they definitely saw some Italian films. And, yeah, it was very that. Giallo mixed with almost a subtle Dawn of the Dead kind of song. Some of the songs mm-hmm. in Dawn of the Dead mixed with Yeah, well, it's got, it's got that electronic. It's European. not Goblin, but no. it's something else. Close, close to Goblin, like mm-hmm. that sort of uh, European electronic uh, kind of. Score. It's like it's it's that prog rock thing. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really well done. Um, I'll just give my final thoughts on it. I think honestly, it's a straight up classic of the genre. I like this better than basically all the Friday the Thirteenth, except for the first one. I think this one is just it's it's hands down better than all the sequels, and it's better than a lot of the slasher films I've seen from that era. I, I think it's really an un, unsung kind of gem, and I think. Mostly that has to do with the fact that people did not get to see the real cut of this film, the un- the uncut version, for so long that it just kind of got uh, thrown into obscurity. Fortunately, now you can see the uncut version, and I think a lot of people are starting to uh, gravitate towards it because uh, it's actually really good. It's got great acting, it's got a great setup, and it's really effective, I think. Go to you, Daniel. What are your final thoughts on this one? I would agree. Uh, I liked watching it. I'd watch it again. Again, not as much meat to chew on as I thought mm-hmm. in Nightmare Vacation, which is what I'm just going to call it now. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but really enjoyable. I can't say classic because I just haven't seen enough of them to, to know, but I mean, it certainly feels this very kind of classic feel. And uh, some great characters and a great start from Miramax. You know, so there you go. All right, Paul, what do you think of this one? Yeah, definitely, definitely one of the tops for me. I really like, uh, I like the nuance of it. I like the... Uh, uh, basically, the plot. Uh, there's actually good acting in this one. You don't have a, a true mix of campers like you do in Sleepaway Camp. You know, to, to get the sense of a real camp and stuff like that. And uh, you don't get more. Of, you don't get like the whole sense of the owner and whatnot exactly. But the the actors that you do see, there's a lot of star class actors in here. Um, as we mentioned prior to people that have blossomed in their in the career later. But overall, the, I like the gore scenes. I like the the killings, I like the um, the backstory, and overall, I think it's probably one of the best camp killers uh, films out there. Uh, definitely one that that slipped under the radar for many years for me, but I'm glad I got a chance to see it, and I own it now. Um, I don't know which version I own, unfortunately, yeah. but uh, um, definitely good scene. Definitely good. 
Yeah, the, the versions you want to look for are the definitely the uh, old MGM release from the mid-2000s. Um, or you can get Scream Factory now. They have the Blu-ray release, which is also uncut. And apparently, I mean, it's fucking Scream Factory, so it's going to be fucking good. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I mean, it's going to be fucking good. I have to know someone had the MGM, because I remember the lion in front of it roaring. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think it's a, actually I think the I think the uh, Scream Factory is the exact same print as as the MGM. It's just that you know they've up, upgraded it to Blu-ray, but it's, I think it's the exact same source. So mm-hmm. because I think MGM just licensed it to them or whatever, right? So but yeah, all right, great. Thank you very much, guys. Next week, uh, just take a little care, a little business here. Next week, we're going to be looking at Just Before Dawn and uh, Motel Hell. Those are the ones we're going to be getting into. So those very polarizing films for if people like to watch them. Uh, we're going to be doing those. Going to try to start doing some commentaries for the uh, podcast. Uh, my brother and I are going to do sort of a dry trial run the Sunday with his, the minimal equipment I have right now. We're going to try to do a pod, sort of a commentary on the 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead. See how that goes. Don't don't expect great things. Uh, it's just going to be a sort of a drunken fan commentary. Hopefully, try to work some more of those into it as as we go along. Some some film commentaries. Hopefully, and can set up a way to get uh, Daniel and Paul into some of these as well. I don't know if it'll work over G plus or not. Uh, I think it's feasible though, so we'll we'll work out the logistics of that at some point. Yeah. So uh, we'll go into to you, Daniel. Uh, would you like to plug your podcast, sir? Sure, I do a podcast with my wife all about Doctor Who, if you're a Doctor Who fans, which I don't think anybody listening to the podcast is, but if you are, uh, go check it out. Our most recent episode I thought was really good. We uh, discussed all of Series 8, the most recent season, talked a lot about some abusive interpersonal relationships, which is great to get to talk about about a family show. And uh, Lee got mentioned on that episode. Lee, have you mentioned that? Have you listened to that episode yet? I haven't listened to it yet. I was going to listen to it yeah. tomorrow at work. So, Well, you, you are you are mentioned by name towards the end, and I think you'll appreciate your, your mention. So the king of abusive relationships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this podcast, I'm the major abuser. Of it. Yeah, I know. All right, that's awesome. Uh, Paul, tell us where we can find you on the interwebs. Uh, Facebook, PA Brew News, three different words. And then on YouTube, PA Brew News, one word. You can see me talk about beers like 50-50 Eclipse and stuff like that. Other than that, if you want to hear some really shitty black metal from the U.S., you go to uh, YouTube, Funeral Dust 666, one word. That's about it for me. Right on. Okay, and of course you get the trailer at the end that will direct you to where you can find all these fine links to all these fine gentlemen's endeavors. And uh, yeah, I think we'll probably go from something from the burning. I think the, the I think that Rick Wakeman score is pretty fucking good. So I'll pick something from that to go out with. And uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me. And thank you very much, people, for listening. And we will be back next week with some more films about tits and knives and slashing and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.